0: Uh, We're going to jump into God's Word today. I'm going to encourage you to turn to Romans 3, and I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to pick it up in verse 21 and go through 31 right here, and uh, I'll just remind you, this is one of the traditions of the early church. They would stand for the reading of God's Word as a way of honoring the authority of God's Word in their life, and so we're going to do that together and pick it up here in verse 21. Here's what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Rome and to us today, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Where then is the boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? No. Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, he's the God of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? No, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of God. You all can go ahead and take a seat this morning. Um, if you were here with us last week, um, <clears throat> Pastor Zane did an incredible job uh, talking to us about the unity that we have in the gospel and how the gospel makes us more alike than unlike. Unalike. I want to continue in that same theme today, uh, not only because this is um, probably one of the most divided times we've had culturally speaking, uh, even within our own church, and and it's just a very very difficult time, but. The subject of unity and division is the reason why Paul is writing about the gospel to the church in Rome. And so it's not just an explanation of what the gospel is about. What he's saying is that the gospel is the solution to everything that drives us apart. And so if you've been with us, you've heard a little bit of the story and some of the context of what's happening here in the church of Rome. But essentially there's been um, a leave of absence for about five years. And so the church began early on as a combination of Jews and Gentiles coming together, began in Jerusalem, moved over to Rome, Jews and Gentiles working together. The Roman Emperor Claudius starts seeing all these Jewish disturbances in the land, and he starts blaming the Jews for uh, these disturbances. And so essentially he makes this edict where he, he kicks out and banishes all the Jews for about five years. And so for five years, no Jews in Rome. They're kicked out of the whole place. Five years later, Emperor Claudius passes away. Nero's Claudius comes in, 17-year-old successor, and he allows the Jews to come back in. And so what's taking place in the church is, all of a sudden, you've got a church, that used to be run largely by Jewish believers at that time. They had the traditions of the law. They knew the right ways to worship and things like that. The Gentiles were brought into that. Five years have passed, and now all of a sudden you're coming back to the church, and there's been a turnover in leadership and power in that church. All of a sudden now you've got the Gentiles that are in charge, and Jews are coming in, and they're realizing, hey, this is not the same church that I used to know. Can you imagine what this would be like? They're coming in and, 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 and I mean, they've got values differences. I mean, their traditions are different. The way they do things are different. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like being in a situation where you don't have a church in every street corner to go to? And this is the only church in town. And their values are not like yours. They don't sing the same way that you're used to singing. Right? Like the, their culture, their traditions, everything is completely different. I've told you before, one of my favorite things to do every July when I get away, I love visiting a a number of different churches in town because I love to see the diversity of the body of Christ. I know that God is moving here at DBC. We are not the only expression and we are not the only uh, movement of God's power anywhere. He is moving all around the city and he does it in a number of different denominations and in a number of different traditions and different styles. I love seeing these different differences. There's one Sunday, and so I I always joke, I'll I'll typically visit about eight or nine different churches in July. I'll double up or triple up on Sunday mornings a lot of times, and uh, I remember this one Sunday, I woke up early, decided to go to the early sunrise service at an Anglican church in Plano, and I'm not kidding, like we were in and out in about 45 minutes, right? You come into the service, and you read the things, and it's very somber, and it's very reflective, and it's quiet, and it's very reverent. And there's a beauty about this worship service. It's just, it's, just, it's just very quiet, and you're reflecting upon the holiness of God in a lot of different ways. That service is done. I go over to one community church. This is one of my favorite churches in town. It's out in Plano. Uh, one of the largest black churches in all of Dallas. And uh, they brought me down to the front. I came in by myself that day. And I I came in down to the front. The place is packed, about 4,000 people in this place. And I'm not kidding you. Worship is like people are bouncing up and down, hands raised, screaming and hollering, like jumping up and down. It is just going nuts. And I absolutely loved it. I'm a hand raiser myself, and I kind of get, in, get into it a little bit. But absolutely loved that experience. So on uh, 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 the same day, different bodies of believers worshiping in completely different ways. One lasted 45 minutes. The other service lasted about two and a half hours, right? Just to give us a little appreciation for what we do. Like I, two completely different bodies going on over here. I've been to, I've seen churches that are incredibly political. Some are on the extreme right. Some on the extreme left. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like if the people who sit on the opposite end of the table from you are, wherever you are politically, culturally, traditionally, or whatever your values may be for what's right and good in worship. I mean, and just imagine what that would be like if the people opposite from you were now in charge of your church and you didn't have options to go to and you didn't have anything to do. Like, What do you do in that thing? A church, that is the setting for Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And so he's not just writing this letter to explain some details about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he's doing is he's explaining and he's showing us how the gospel is a solution to everything that naturally drives us apart. And, so, and, it's, and it's still the solution for us today in this incredibly divided world. What he's going to be saying to the church back then and to the church here in 2020 is that the gospel still is the solution to everything that is driving us apart today. And so I want to get into some of the specifics of this and talk about really how the gospel goes and brings about peace in the world that we're living in today. And the reason we need to talk about that is you have to understand that's not how the world sees what we do in our gatherings on a Sunday morning. They don't see us being a people of peace, whether we want to believe that or not. Uh, I was reading a a little bit of Frederick Lentz a little little while ago. Frederick Lentz, he was one of the leaders in the American Buddhist movement. uh, And he passed away about 15, 20 years ago, something like that. But he was one of the people that was largely responsible for bringing about American Buddhism in our culture today. But here's what he had to say about religion and essentially what we believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he says, one religion will inevitably suppress another when they claim to be the exclusive path to God. And so this is a major movement in our, in our country where we believe, okay, if there are exclusive views of God, one God, one truth, then inevitably whoever believes in that exclusive truth is going to oppress and minimize and marginalize everyone else. I was reading another article more recently than that, um, but it was talking about the rise of nihilism in America today. Nihilism being uh, this idea that no religions, are, no religions are true, there is no religious truth, Uh, everything is meaningless. This is Marx and Freud. Uh, It's it's atheism and another way to talk about it right there. There is no religious truth, but it's talking about the rise of nihilism in light of uh, exclusivity, inclusivity, and pluralism. Uh, pluralistic religious views of God. And so he's just talking about the rise of this thing. Now, they did say there's a positive and negative nihilism. This one's pretty pessimistic. This one's pretty negative right there. There's a positive nihilism, they say, which says, hey, we do not believe in religious truth. Um, Life is meaningless, whatever meaning you want to bring to it. However, we understand that religion can still be good for you. And so we're not going to be totally negative, Nellies or anything like that. Reli- you can go and have your religious take. We understand that it's good for your psyche. It's good for community. It's good for your mental and emotional health. So as long as you don't believe the things that you're saying about, you're free to go and do religion. So that's the rise of positive nihilism. This article is talking about how, how increasingly popular that view is. We're cool with you being religious as long as you don't believe the things that you're preaching about, singing about, talking about in your life groups or anything like that. And so, um, and so here's what they had to say. Here's exclusivity. He's talking about how nihilism is more preferable than exclusivity. Exclusivity is this conviction that truth belongs to God, right? And by nature, truth is exclusive. Something is either true or it's not true, right? It's Jesus when He says in John, uh, it's Jesus when He says, "Like I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." Exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. I am the way, truth, and the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's Jesus when He's talking to Nicodemus and He says, uh, "Nicodemus, you must be born again if you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You must." It's not like a, hey, that's good for you, but something else is good for them. It's like, no, 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 you have to be born again if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's exactly what Paul's saying in this letter right here. He's going to say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and can only be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so that's exclusivity. Exclusivity. And it's overwhelmingly what's being done away with culturally today um, in favor of the rise of a positive nihilism. And so here's what the article says. He says, here's what's preferable. Exclusivity, it says, it seems outrageous, at least to more impartial thinkers. To believe that your own religion is the one true one and that all other religions are false, it seems incredibly arrogant and even offensive. And so it continues and it says, the benefit of positive nihilism is that it avoids the arrogance of exclusivity. Since it denies the reality of religious truth, and more importantly, it allows one to fully support religious practice without having to do with it, without having to do with what exclusivists love to do, which is refute, reject, and sometimes even destroy other forms of religion and Of course, the irony of the whole article is this is a whole article refuting, rejecting. destroying the very tenets of truth and what religious truth we hold to today. But church, like, like that's the problem with the exclusive claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is defensive, or I'm sorry, it is divisive, and it produces arrogance inside of believers who believe they understand the truth. In other words, it's not only not the solution to what drives us apart today, it is the very thing that is driving us apart today. And granted, if you look over the course of history, you have to acknowledge, yeah, people have used religion, people have used exclusive views of truth in order to divide and conquer. Have they not? I mean, you look through history and you you remember the Crusades, you remember um, the Salem witch trials from history class. You can even see this taking place all around the world, sometimes even in our culture today, where people use religion to conquer and divide rather than unify or anything like that. And so, um, like, it absolutely happens. But what Paul's showing us right here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is completely different from anything else because it suffocates arrogance and any right for us to boast. I mean, that's what he says here in verse 27. He begins in this next section after clearly articulating the gospel of Jesus Christ. He simply says, where is the boasting in this thing? Like, I've laid it out for you clearly. Where in the world is the boasting in the gospel of Jesus Christ? He says it's non-existent. It doesn't, it, it doesn't, it's not here. In other words, like, I know that religion can be used to divide. But when you look at the gospel, like, how in the world do you boast in anything? Like, when, when you're justified, verse 28, by faith, apart from works of the law, where in the world is the self-righteousness that leads to so much anger and division? Where's it coming from? Like when you literally bring nothing to the table except for your need, and your soul depends upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, like how in the world can it not produce the humility and mercy necessary to bring about peace in our world today? I love the way that uh, Dane Ortland talks about this, but he says, Christianity is the unreligion. Christianity is the unreligion because it contradicts all of our natural inclinations to try to justify ourselves. And so he says this. He says the Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. Hindus tell us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnostics tell us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralists tell us to be good by working from a place of obligation. But it's only the gospel that tells us that we can be free when we acknowledge our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it is the only faith whose founder tells us not to bring our doing, but to simply bring our need. And so here's my question, church. Like, like if everyone holds to exclusive forms of truth, which we absolutely do, I hope we've talked about that um, ad nauseum over the years together. I hope we understand, like, everyone holds to exclusive views of truth. So if everyone holds to exclusive views of truth, and arrogance is the thing that we've all recognized that divides, it brings up division, and it, and it separates us, which it absolutely does. Then shouldn't we be trying to figure out which set of beliefs are not only true, but give us the best shot at reducing arrogance and creating peace? Like when, church, when, like when that's the question, there is nothing that can touch the beauty of the gospel, I'm telling you, like, when that's the question, there is nothing that can touch the beauty of the gospel. I want to show you how this whole thing plays out, but Charles Spurgeon talks about, Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century British preacher that all of us love to quote way too often, um, but he's the guy that, uh, he says that there's three distinct types of pride that are still ripping apart culture today. It was present in 19th century England, where he was. Uh, It's still present in America today, but he says there's three distinct types of pride that are still ripping apart culture today. The pride of face the pride of race and the pride of grace. And so the pride of grace and the pride of faith are very similar. I'm gonna lump them together. But essentially what he's talking about right there is it is, the, uh, it is a pride based on some sort of an achievement or some sort of a character quality or some sort of a moral virtue that you may have which makes you better than another Okay, so it may be something that you do. It may be a title you have at work. It may be the size of your house, the kind of car that you have, your beauty. It could be your sense of humor, how funny you are, how clever you are, how witty you are, whatever that thing is that you, you cling to, which makes you better than another. And so like, like that is what's happening here in the Church of Rome. And for them, it was all centered around this natural inclination to try to justify your own life, um, even around good things like religion, and obedience to God's word. That's what's taking place here. That's why Paul is taking so much time to break down traditional religion in their minds. These Jews are holding to it tightly. They're holding to uh, the word of God, which is a beautiful thing, right? But they've elevated it too highly in some ways and they're clinging to it for a sense of self-righteousness. And so like, that's what's taking place right here. Keep in mind, church, Gentiles did not have a history with the law. And so this is part of the conflict that's going on right there. They did not have a long history with the law. And so you can imagine Gentiles are coming into their fellowship and they're not taking certain forms of obedience that are culturally acceptable um, as seriously as other people and it's creating tension. And then Jews, they've had the law passed down from one generation to the next. They've had the traditions. they've um, They've had... They've had all the feasts. They've had uh, everything. They know how to worship right. And so they're coming in, and what happens over time is you begin to elevate the authority of God's word. You begin to elevate obedience to God's law in such a way that simply says, okay, if I can just obey this law, then I'll be approved, and then I'll be acceptable before God. Or something like this. If I can just obey the law better than most, then I'll end up being justified in the end. The Church, is this not how we justify ourselves today? I mean, I don't remember, I don't know if you, when was the last time you had a gospel-oriented conversation with somebody outside of the faith? And I I remember pretty much every single time you share the gospel, you engage, and you ask something around the question of, hey, if God were to ask you the question, why should I approve of you? Why should I let you into heaven or something like that? What would you say? What do they always say? It's always something around, the, something around hey, um, you know what? I've, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good girl. I've never done this, that, and the other. I've, I've been loving towards people. I've been kind, something like that. I mean, it, 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 that is how people respond today. Church, like that's what, what's going on right there. But what Paul's saying here is that the gospel is very, very different. Like There's two problems he says here. The problem with that kind of answer, number one, is found in verse 23 when he says, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And this is the biggest problem. There's none who are righteous in verse 10, not even one person. In other words, like a pretty good life is simply not going to cut it before a holy and perfect God. Like, that's what he's saying. Like, the holy can't have anything to do with unholy. And so the fact that you may be better than someone else in some sort of a regard, it really does not matter because it still can't make you holy and righteous as God is holy and righteous. And so big picture, that is the largest problem with a merit-based righteousness and merit-based perspective about my own justification for my own existence. Now, as it pertains to our conversation right here, in matters of peace and unity with people outside, people within our own church body. Here it is. If you functionally are trying to justify yourself on the basis of your merit, you are always going to be competing with other people so that you can know how well you're doing. And that is either going to lead to boasting and bragging and pride or else jealousy and depression if you're not doing as well. And so you're going to rise up and there's going to be pride and boasting and arrogance if you're doing really, really, really well or or, or depression and jealousy if you're not. Both of which are going to drive people apart in the end. I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about this, but he says this. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer, more clever, better-looking than other people. If everyone else can become equally rich, equally clever, equally good-looking, there would be nothing more to be proud about. It is the competition that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. I mean, church, like, think about how this plays out in sports. No one's ever bought tickets to a game and it's like, hey, good job, guys. You 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 played really hard. You know, you you played well. There's something to be proud of. Like, no one does that, right? Maybe Baylor does that, but no one else No one else is satisfied, like, like, I'm just kidding about that. We love Baylor and stuff, but Aggies, we did that too for the longest time ever. But um, like, no one is satisfied by how well I do in relationship to myself. It is always in relationship to how well you do in comparison to another team. I was at a game recently, and like, everybody's standing up and cheering once they're destroying the opposite team. They're talking trash because they're beating the other team, and that's what's going on point of the matter church is that pride is sustained through comparison and competition but what paul is showing us right here is that the gospel is completely different because it eliminates both of those things like pride is sustained through comparison and competition arrogance and pride depression and despair is all nurtured through comparison and competition but what paul is saying like the gospel destroys both of those things like it's the whole point of this passage he comes in and he simply says, even though the church there is none of us who are righteous, not even one, even though uh, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you and I can still be justified freely by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord, which is apart from any works of the law. And so, where in the world is the boasting in this message? Where is the arrogance? Where is the comparison and the competition? Where is anything that's going to lead you to divide from other people over there? And so let me just ask you this question, church, like you who already know the gospel truth, you've received it at the very beginning. The question I have for you is, are you able to functionally walk in this truth today? Like you who know, hey, I am, I've been approved before God on the basis of his grace and his mercy. I'm not bringing my merit. I'm not bringing anything to the table. His approval of me has everything to do with his mercy and everything that took place on the cross of Jesus Christ it has nothing to do with what i to bring. Like, are you able to walk in that grace today? Or are you functionally walking in the merits of what you do? I mean, let me think about how it plays out wherever you work. Someone else gets the promotion. Like, what's happening in your heart, or even your mouth? Like, are you tearing them down with your words? What do they really do to get that promotion? There's no way that person's better than I am. Politics. Poli- like, like, what is going on inside of your soul? Like, uh, do you see competition rising up in the day to day of your life? Maybe it's social media the mommy bloggers popped out seven babies has perfect abs a husband who's like a godly version of ryan gosling or something like that you know it's like uh and it, like what's going on inside of your soul and you're you're, you're following them you're watching them like, like it, is it comparison and competition you're sitting there going yeah but you know what well, like it, it, you know my my life is still better over here or you're secretly hoping that hey there's something that's going to destroy that home back like what's happening inside of your soul uh i'll never forget a little while ago i was just, I was struck by how easy it is for people, self-included right here, who know the truth of the gospel to not walk in it on a daily basis. I found myself at one of these incredible churches and I was worshiping and the guy got up there and he started preaching. And I'm just gonna let you know, like it was one of the most beautiful sermons I'd ever heard. Just powerful, powerful. And I'm sitting there listening and, and I'm watching, and I'm engaging and this thought came into my mind, you'll never be able to preach like him you'll never be able to be that good. And I sat there in the middle of a worship service, knowing my approval before God has nothing to do with what I bring to the table, knowing... All he's called me to is faithfulness with what he's given me as a man, given me as a husband, given me as a pastor to do. He's called me to faithfulness. And cognitively, I know that. And inside the recesses of my soul, there's this voice that came out and said, you'll never be as good as that. Competition and comparison, knowing the truth of the gospel and functionally having it contradict what I'm feeling and thinking at that moment in time. Church, what Paul's saying is that the gospel has eradicated the comparison and competition. So praise God I was able to sit there in that moment and say, Father, what in the world is this? And to be able to look in that moment and to be able to say, Father, like, that is not of you. It is not of you. Father, take captive every thought in my mind. Eradicate this from my heart. Like, that is not it. And I was able to lay that down immediately and come back and start engaging in worship again, knowing we are not in competition with other churches in the city. We are on the same team promoting the exact same God through the exact same gospel, giving Jesus all the glory in the process. So church, like functionally speaking, are you able to walk in the grace that he's given to you or are you hampered by the pride of your face? Like That's what he's bringing us to right here. And what Paul's saying, the gospel is completely different because it has eradicated all comparison and competition. And so he keeps going and he says, that's one of the elements. The other one is the pride of race, right? And I think we understand what that one's about. This is a, uh, obviously it's front and center of our cultural conversations today. But what he's saying right here is that from the very beginning, he's saying people have often used their ethnic identity as a way of distinguishing themselves above other people. And he says, this is what we do. By nature, we are people that need to be justified, right? If you're not going to find justification in Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will find it somewhere else, either in the pride of face and a lot of times in the pride of race. You will identify in a group that is very similar to you, looks like you, thinks like you, the same values of you. That will give you a sense of justification that you are right in the world, Right, and you'll cling to that, and you'll over time elevate it over time, and it will suppress and crush and, and 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 kill other people there. But he says this: he says Jews have done this from the very beginning; they took pride in their Jewishness. Romans did the same thing; they took pride in their Romanness. British in their Britishness. Americans in their Americanness. And he goes: the problem's not really with the general love or affection for your heritage; it's not that. The problem's when you let your heritage justify and define your existence more so than the God who created you, when when you let your cultural norms and your background and your heritage define you more than the truth of God's word, when you let them dictate your feelings and your values, he says, that's when a healthy love of race turns into pride. And pride turns into competition. And competition turns into feelings of superiority or inferiority. And that leads to xenophobia. And ultimately an anger or an apathy towards people who do not look like you or speak the language. And again, church, what Paul is saying here is that the gospel completely undoes that. You got to understand like this is the tension in the first century church. I mean, there is massive racial tension in the first century. It's not new today. It was taking place at the very beginning, Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles being everyone who's not a Jew. Acts chapter 10, Paul's gonna say this. And this is how they thought. He says, you're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or even visit a Gentile. Church, like that's how divided it was back then. Like that's how normative it was to divide on ethnic lines. I mean, and this is that church. It's a church full of Jews and Gentiles and Romans and Samaritans and people of every color, people of every tribe, people who are not naturally friends. And so Paul comes in and he's saying, hey, just a little reminder, there is no boasting in the gospel. I don't care if it's the pride of face or if it's the pride of race. Like we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, God's approval of you has nothing to do with where you're from. God's approval of you has nothing to do with the color of your skin. It has nothing to do with your nationality, your socioeconomic background, what kind of family you may have come from. It has nothing to do with any of those kinds of things. It has everything to do with a gift of His grace, His love being set upon you, and uh, apart from any works of the law. And so He continues with this question. I don't want you to see what He says. Verse 29, He asks this question regarding race. He says, Beyond that, is God the God of Jews only? come on, Jews in this church, not picking on them holy, but do you understand? Like, come on. Do you really think that God is the God of Jews only? I mean, I know you've got the background. I know you've got Moses. You've got the law. You've got traditions. You've got all this great stuff. And we know that you are God's chosen people at the very beginning. But do you really think that he's only the God of Jews? No. He says he's the God of Gentiles too. In other words, like not only does the gospel eliminate all comparison and competition, but it reminds us that God is the God of all and not just the God of some. That's what he's saying, church. Like he did not just come for the Jews. He didn't just come for the Americans. He didn't just come for the Romans, the British, the English, the white, the black, the brown, anything in between. He did not just come for them. He came for all. All around the world, that's why it's a global mission. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you to do. It's what he's talking about in Ephesians 2 when Paul says, he himself is our peace, meaning Jesus. Jesus is our peace. The way that you can have peace with man is to have peace with God. And he says, he himself is our peace. who's made two groups into one. Jews and Gentiles. Jews and everybody else. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, he says, his purpose being to create in himself one brand new humanity out of the two, thus establishing peace among men. And in one body, meaning Jesus, to reconcile both of them to the Father through the cross by which he's put to death their hostility. In other words, like through the cross, Jesus took Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, men and women, Republicans and Democrats, black and white and every single shade of brown, and he created a brand new humanity, first by establishing peace with the Father through the cross of Jesus Christ. The just wrath of God was satisfied through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. God's wrath against sin and needed to be appeased. That's what he's talking about in 25 or 26, where he talks about Jesus being a propitiation. It means that his wrath against sin, it was satisfied. There was peace with God the Father because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so first we have peace with the Father. And then through that peace we have with the Father, we now have the life, we now have the ability, we now have the indwelling Holy Spirit to create peace among man uh, in the world and in, our, and in our church body. There is first vertical peace, then horizontal peace. It's what he's talking about in Galatians 4 when he says he's given us the spirit of his son, which cries out, Abba, Father. So we're no longer slaves, but we're children and we're heirs of God. In other words, like that's who we now are, church. We're not just strangers that come together at the same building every time. We're not just a bunch of people that come and do the same things. We're actually family. We're not just friends. We're not just neighbors or coworkers, but like we're actually family, those of us who are in Jesus Christ. We are one giant, diverse, and incredibly messy family, complete with a crazy uncle who spouts off nonsense at the wedding, right? Like, like we were, we we're that kind of family. But at the end of the day, like that is who we are. And church, is not just with people that are like us. It's not just people that, that think like us and look like us. It's not just that. James is gonna say, he's gonna talk about partiality. He's gonna say, God is not partial, by the way. He's not partial like we are partial. He doesn't care about our differences or the, the, the sub-differences that we have here. As James is gonna say, if you show partiality regarding the royal law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, you are committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. In other words, like, if, if you're willing to love the people who look just like you, think just like you, value the exact same things, but you ignore the people that are on the other side of that table, you are guilty of sin, and being a transgressor of the law. If you can love certain people over here, but gossip about and slander people who are not on the same page of you on some issues over here, then you are guilty of slander. He's saying that God is not partial. And then of course, Jesus takes it to a whole new level when he says, you've heard it said that I'm telling you to love your neighbor as yourself, but I'm telling you to love your enemies and to to bless those who persecute you, pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because the church, like that's how God has loved us. When we were still lost and dead in our sins, when we were enemies of God, hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, God "'Fixed his love on you and me. "'He came to us in the middle of our running, "'in the middle of our sin, "'in the middle of our depravity. "'He moved towards you and he moved towards me. "'He sent his one and only son, Jesus, "'condescended from heaven, took on flesh, "'lived the sinless life you and I could not live, "'willingly went to the cross, "'and he suffered, bled, and died "'so that you and I could be at peace with God the Father, "'that his just wrath against sin would be satisfied.'" that we could be at peace with God the Father, and that that peace would overflow into the unity that we have within the church of Jesus Christ, and then into the lost and broken world, knowing that that's how we were first loved by him. So how in the world can we divide where God has brought us together? Church, how in the world can we get fixated in all these divisions, and all this this and that, like how in the world can we divide when God has brought us together? I'm telling you, church, like the problem is not with an exclusive view of truth. The problem is with any kind of truth that has no ability to bring about peace inside and unity out there. I love what Tim Keller has to say. He's uh, in his uh, book, Reasons for God. He says, one of the greatest paradox in history was when at the beginning of the early church, the Greeks and the Romans had some of the most inclusive and relativistic religions in the world. Everyone have your own God. No big deal. Whatever God you choose, there's thousands of them. They're all equal. That was their way, and it seemed so inclusive. Yet the world was more divided and prejudiced than ever before. Church, are we divided and probably more prejudiced than ever before? <laughs> like we're living in one of the most relativistic, like, inclusive times ever, and it's not helping. And he says, then come the Christians. They declare that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, which seems incredibly exclusive. Yet the fact of history is that Christians created the most inclusive, peace-filled, loving community in history. Any of you guys ever grew up in a tradition that practiced, um, they did love feasts? Any of you guys know that name? Please raise your hand. Tell me I'm not alone on this. I didn't know I came from a weird background, but evidently I do. Um, and so all, the, all it is is potlucks. But this is a thing that was named love feast back in the first century because that's what it was. It was a time when people were accepted and embraced and a way to show love and acceptance was to invite you into your home to have a meal together and to eat together. That's what people did. There was no Netflix and Sports Center and Masters tournaments and all that kind of stuff. You ate food together. You didn't have a whole lot of electricity, so you went to bed at, bed at, at nighttime and stuff. And so that's what they did. And so the early church came together, and they would host love feasts. And everybody would bring food, and the community would be invited to this thing. And the gathering of people there would be unbelievably diverse, rich and poor, Every background, every nationality, every maturity level of where you may be in relationship, like every little bit of it is, is brought together. And what would happen is that the community would look at the beauty of this relationship, the beauty of this family that's coming together, which makes no sense. And they would say, I've never seen that kind of love before. And the reality is, church, like this is the season in which the church just exploded upon the scene. In fact, there was a Roman spy who wrote about this to the Roman emperor, and he's spying on the early church, and he had this to say about what he was seeing in this early community. But he says, It is the Christians, O emperor, who have sought and found the truth. We have realized it from their writings. They are closer to the truth and to a right understanding than all other peoples, for they acknowledge God. And I want you to listen to how he describes their gathering they welcome the stranger, they eat with the outcast, and they provide for the poor. They speak gently to those who oppress them, and in this way they make them their friends. It's become their passion to do good to their enemies, any male or female servants whom individuals among them may have. They persuade to become Christians because of the love that they feel towards them. If they do become Christians, they are brothers to them without discrimination. This, O emperor, is the rule of life for the Christians, and this their manner of life. Church, where in the world is the boasting in this message? Where in the world is the arrogance? Where in the world is the pettiness and the divisiveness? It's just not there. Church, the reality is that the world needs peacemakers right now. The world needs a church that knows about peace, that is willing to bring it to a lost and broken world. You're like, your family needs peacemakers. Your friends, they need peacemakers your coworkers, the people on your street, the people online that you're constantly sparring with. The world needs peacemakers. It's not a stretch to say this is probably the most divided and angry time that I can imagine in 40 years of living. We need a people to understand the gospel of peace, the God of peace who came to, be, who came to make peace with us through a sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And then to go and to take that peace and to bring it out to a world around us that is in desperate need of it. I'll tell you, um, a little while ago, a couple weeks back, I woke up in the middle of the night with this very, very vivid dream. And I've never been, I've only told you a couple of these dreams and stuff before. I don't throw it out there. as Some sort of a prophetic authoritative word or something like that. Nevertheless, I think this is something that God was showing me in that moment. And I woke up a couple weeks ago with um, in the middle of the night with this very vivid memory of the early car sales days. And uh, if you've been around the church a little while, I've told you like coming out of college, I had a season where I did some car sales before we got into seminary. I love people and, and sales and I never expected to do that. That's a different story in, it for, in and of itself. But I'll tell you one of the interesting things about car sales that I actually loved was understanding that when I'm out there on a lot and people pull up and they're walking around checking out cars, they already hate me right? Like car salesmen don't have a good reputation. They're already on edge. There's no trust whatsoever, right? You're already terrified. You really don't want that guy talking to you. And there is part of a thrill of kind of going, you know what? It's my opportunity to come and to break down these walls that are dividing us right here and to be able to reestablish trust and to build this relationship that's going to benefit them in the end. And I woke up a couple weeks ago just to this vaunt, like that was the thing that was playing in my mind over and over again. And I woke up just this this clear understanding and I felt like the Lord was just simply saying that is where the church is today. Decreasing credibility. A world that doesn't want to hear what we have to say. A world that doesn't believe it. People that don't want what we're talking about. They don't trust us nearly as much. And the opportunity that's before us today is that you and I would be peacemakers, that we would be truth-tellers at the exact same time, and that we would have this opportunity to come and engage with the people that do not want largely what we're talking about and what we're selling and to be able to show them the beauty of the gospel through the peace that he's exhibited first and foremost in us that we get to share with the rest of the world. There's incredible opportunity before us today. I think we're moving into a season where church attendance is not going to be what it used to be just don't think it is. I think that it's going to be much more difficult and I think that things are changing and a lot of the cultural norms are not going to be norms anymore that we grew accustomed to. I think that we're not going to be as trusted. We don't have the respect and the credibility that we used to have. And the opportunity for you and the opportunity for me is to actually live out the gospel that we've believed. That we're not justified by anything that we bring to the table. We're not justified because we've morally cleaned up better than anybody else. We're not justified because we figured everything out and we're better than anything. We're justified simply because there's an incredible God in heaven who has loved us in the middle of our sin, in the middle of our wickedness, in the middle of our wandering. He still loved you and me and he moved toward us in mercy and in grace and in healing and he offered you this gift which we simply said thank you for. Church, there's opportunity for peacemakers in this world who are firmly committed to the gospel of peace. And when we go and we walk in that peace, it will be welcomed in the circles that you live in today. And I think that that's what God is calling us to today. Church, may Dallas Bible Church be a place that is known for its peace. That is known for profound unity with people that don't all think the same, with people that don't all vote the same with people that have different opinions on whether or not to wear a mask and when we should regather and what reconciliation racially looks like in the world. There are so many different things that are pining for our attention, trying to divide us and rip us apart. And in the middle of that place, God saw us in hostility and he moved toward us and he brought us peace with the Father so we could be at peace and unity with one another. May that be the thing that characterizes us these days. Heavenly Father, we love you, God. We praise you and we thank you, Lord Jesus. God, our confession is that we, we're not coming with merit today, God. We don't have it. You're holy and we're not. You're righteous, God, and we're just not. We're just not apart from what you've given to us already in Jesus Christ. That is the hope in which we stand today. And so, Father, for that we say thank you. Father, would you produce a profound humility and compassion in the people here at Dallas Bible Church that we would exhibit an unbelievable unity and love for one another, and that that would go across these lines of this church and that would go into our community, that people who are far away would be brought near by the beauty of your grace. Church, I want to give you a moment. Would you just take a minute and would you just ask the Lord to reveal whatever your better than may be. Maybe it's the pride of face something about you, something about your morality, something about what you've done, something about your beauty, your character that makes you better than? Would you identify any feelings of competitiveness, of comparison that have arisen in your soul even recently? And would you allow yourself to just simply go before the cross and lay it down at the throne and receive his grace right now? Father, we lay down the pride of our work. We lay down the pride of our children's success. We lay lay down the pride of our beauty, the pride of our wealth, the pride of our country that we love so much. All of our pride, God, we lay it down and we simply say thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus. Let it produce peace in us today, God. And I pray that every man, woman, and child in this place would be a peacemaker in the world in which we live. God, that you would be praised, that you would be glorified, that you would add to our number daily those being saved, not maybe necessarily the size and enormity of our church, but Father, that you would add to our number daily those coming into right relationship with you because of your son, Jesus Christ. God, would you do that? you make your church resilient, firmly rooted in the hope of Jesus Christ. Father, we love you, God. We praise you. We thank you this day. It's in Jesus' mighty and holy name we pray. Amen and amen.